You're listening to the National Health Executive's Finger on the Pulse podcast with me, your host, Matt Roberts, to guide you beyond the headlines with news, views, and insider truths from across the healthcare sector. Welcome back to episode 19 of NHE's Finger on the Pulse podcast. On today's topic, we're going to be talking all around sort of taking care of staff and, and how staff can have a real say and impact in it. And what we're going to do to talk about that is talk about a very innovative scheme that's taking place in Northumbria Healthcare NHS Trust, um, alongside some support from the Health Foundation. So I'm delighted to be joined today by, from the Trust, Annie Laverty. Thank you for joining me, Annie. Morning, Matt. And as well, from the Health Foundation, Will Warburton. Again, Will, thank you for joining me on today. Hi, Matt. Thanks very much for having us. No problem. And we'll jump sort of straight into it. Um, I suppose we'll go first to you, Annie. Um, Could you just sort of introduce yourself, your role within the Trust, just very briefly for our audience? Yeah, sure, Matt. Um, I'm Chief Experience Officer with the Trust, Um, And that means I have a leading responsibility and board level responsibility, really, for improving patient and staff experience together. Brilliant. And Will, same for yourself, just quickly. Yes, Matt. I'm Director of Improvement at the Health Foundation. Um, We're a charity um, and our purpose is to improve health and healthcare. And um, part of the joy of my role, we do research and analysis, but we also get to fund and support great work like the kind we're going to be talking about today. Amazing, amazing stuff. And as you you touched on there, the sort of bit of work that we're talking about at the moment is a process and a platform that's been put in place in Northumbria um, called Coronavice is the current name for the platform. But what it basically does is it helps trusts gather weekly feedback from staff, helps them sort of generate a better understanding of the needs and the needs of those staff, of patients, of families, and altogether helps by the sounds of it, and I'm sure Annie can sort of go into more depth, start those conversations that are very important ensuring we deliver the best care um obviously that's me from an outsider giving a brief overview but Annie from your role delivering and being involved in these sort of steps is that very much what it's about and is that why it's important to the trust yeah Matt it's important for for lots of reasons I mean looking after your workforce is really important it makes sense from a human perspective you want to hold on to good staff The NHS relies on the goodwill of people being deeply committed to a purpose to provide the best care for um, patients. But we know that providing that care sometimes comes at a cost to individuals. Um, And so NHS organisations need to do all all that they can to protect staff well-being because we know it is inextricably linked to the quality Mm. of care that patients receive and also the safety of those organizations and reliability of those organizations. So my organization had already done a lot of work to um, measure, understand, improve in real time um, the quality of our care based on what patients were telling us. In 2018, my role changed and um, I wanted to see if we could take some of those lessons and apply them and use the same approaches to in real time improve staff experience too and see the benefit for both our patients and our and our workforce. Yeah definitely and so you, you touched on briefly there that this was a process that had started long before the pandemic but has probably taken on a bit of a new leaf in sort of the last 12 months I imagine. Yes definitely so Um, We'd started this work um, at the end of 2018, um, 
with fantastic support from the Health Foundation, we were looking at the conditions for trialing different technologies for engaging with staff and learning from the evidence base and finding out through staff feedback where we needed to enhance well-being and support better. Uh, we were pretty delighted with how that work had started off. We'd had a, a really successful 2019 where we'd seen um, real changes in measurement and improvement take place. We saw all areas of staff experience improve for the better statistically within 12 months. And our national results at the end of 2019 were, were exceptional. We were named best place to work in the NHS. But then, of course, the um, pandemic happened and we realised that a pulse survey every three months or so, however evidence-based and appropriate, wasn't going to keep us close to the emotions of our staff. Yeah. Uh, so we were quickly able to um, adapt some of the technology that we'd been piloting as part of the Health Foundation's Innovating for Improvement programme and work with the Open Lab colleagues at Northumbria University to adapt a platform and get it out. We launched it on April the 6th, which was kind of at the start of the first wave in the Northeast. Yeah. Um, and within three months, we'd had more than 10,500 responses from staff. That, that information was like gold dust for us. We were getting weekly reports of exactly how people were feeling, and what some of their frustrations were, what their fears were, equally what was helping them so that we could do more about it. And because we were getting such feedback in such large numbers, we were able to really understand all of the experiences across our 11 hospitals and our community sites and, and across social care too. So it gave us really timely information and specific information so that we could target support. Definitely. And I suppose, um, jumping over yourself, Will, um, the Health Foundation were quite heavily involved in supporting a lot of this, these schemes. But as somebody who, within the Health Foundation, a lot of the research they do, who's very involved with that policy, has been quite refreshing to be able to see a trust take such a proactive um, step to get very up-to-date information obviously our research is only as good as our data and by the sounds of it it's very present and regularly updated data that we're now being able to take advantage of yeah that's right matt i think that's why piece of, this piece of work was very attractive um to us because we know um at the sort of national level um that there's a major challenge facing the nhs we went into the pandemic with maybe a hundred thousand vacancies and uh we've done modeling that suggests that we need to attract and um, recruit maybe more, around a million people over the next 10 or 11 years into health and social care and retention and recruitment was a challenge before but as Annie's saying going through COVID and we know from the annual staff survey that we've got around 44% of staff reporting across the NHS that they've been unwell with stress this year which is the highest for five years we've got research we've seen from King's College um, was looking in the first wave suggesting that nearly half of staff in intensive care um, have got symptoms consistent with uh, post-traumatic stress disorder or uh, depression or anxiety. So we know that there's a major challenge and these national tools and research are good up to a point, exactly as you say, but they don't actually give you the kind of granular, timely information that helps you to really pinpoint which groups uh, are under pressure and help create 
that kind of opportunity to say as an organization, well, what can we do here and now to try and make that better, not in a year's time, but today and next week. And so we think this kind of real time, well, it's not quite real time measurement, we're not quite there yet, but (laughs) this much more regular measurement um, is a major step forward um, on taking on what we think is one of the most pressing challenges facing, um, facing the service. Absolutely. And that is, as you've touched on there, the sort of mental health strains, especially on staff over the last sort of 12 months, have expanded significantly. And that's something that we're going to be dealing with likely long beyond sort of hopefully getting past the virus itself. Um, To yourself, Annie, as sort of within a trust, you probably, as um, we've touched on, being able to see exactly what the problems being faced by your staff are, it probably gives quite a, a good ability to be able to address more specific concerns. Um, obviously, nationally, we can say that, oh, we need to put this support in for doctors or we need to put this support in for nurses. Um, but they're probably quite different to what individual trusts need. There's probably a more focused um, route, if, if what I'm trying to say. Is that something from yourselves that you've seen, an ability to give your own staff a voice within their own trust? Yes, no, absolutely, Matt. So um, because of how timely the information was, so we had a health and wellbeing steering group set up um, through COVID, um, and, and, and sometimes we met twice a week. But we were literally getting the information from our staff at the end of a Friday um, and, and then meeting on the Monday and Tuesday to decide what we were going to do about it. Um, that offer of support um, came with the contribution from colleagues from many different professional groups, so from health psychology, from public health, equality and diversity colleagues, HR, comms and engagement, my teams and staff experience. Um, So a very integrated offer that um, we just developed based on what staff told us. We were able to understand that different groups um, perceive threat in different ways. So some of the clinicians much more comfortable with elements of um, clinical risk and infection control. Um, But that felt very different and very frightening for administrative staff who'd never had to contend with PPE um, and and protection really. Um, So we we understood the messages from our staff as it was clear that Will mentioned in a granular way. And we could also see the site differences. So we learned that it was actually staff that were at home that were feeling most challenged in some of this. They felt disconnected. They Many felt guilty if they were having to shield at home that they weren't part um, of offering support um, during the crisis. So we could change all of that. We could change our messaging about the up- amount of information we sent home to people and how we did that. We set up wellbeing calls. We provided guidance for our managers for how they could lead through COVID. We made films for different professional groups to meet yeah. their information needs. Um, we provided well-being resources on a website. Um, and we could understand when people were tuning in at three o'clock in the morning because they couldn't sleep or because of the psychological impact of what they were experiencing about what kind of support they need. So it was very, it was a very structured offer of support but it was absolutely tailored to by the feedback that we were receiving from staff and I think that made it so meaningful and the other thing I think I would add is is that 
it enabled our staff to believe that the organization was with them, staying yeah. with them at a time when things were the most difficult. So it's quite, it's quite courageous for an organization to, in the middle of a pandemic, to stay really close to the emotions of their staff and ask them every week or every day, how are you feeling? Is there anything we can do to help? Because some of those things feel outside of your control. Um, but I think our staff are deeply appreciative of the senior leadership and my trust that, that used Corona Voice as a way of signaling that we were all in this together. And I think that made a, a massive difference. Yeah. Some of the innovation that spread from that was massive. You know, we opened a whole PPE factory to deal with the supply shortage yeah. and to keep our staff safe. But it might be small, simple ideas like installing sinks at the front of our um, hospitals to make staff feel more safe around infection control. Whole host of ideas that we were able to respond to quickly, which is yeah, important. Definitely. And as you, you say, the, the sort of message from all organisations and all sort of thing throughout this pandemic has been that we're in this together and we want to support each other. But there's a difference between hearing those messages and, like you say, the small little moments of your trust, your organisation, who is this massive um, part of your life, actually stopping and going, how are you doing this week? That makes a huge difference for staff. And it's interesting you mentioned that a lot of the staff you saw who were potentially feeling quite vulnerable or having mental health issues were those not necessarily on the front line but also working from home that's certainly something that makes a lot of sense to me but I wouldn't have necessarily thought about unless it comes up and I suppose from your point of view Will obviously a lot of the policy you do is quite nationally as well is that something that's perhaps not necessarily surprising but is an interesting point to yourself as well that we don't always necessarily hear about is the impact of those who feel a bit more isolated from the actual sort of frontline health response yeah, I, I, I think that's I think that's right. You can't see these things unless you get up close and personal. And it's actually, um, for me, you touched earlier on the question of how important was it? Some of this work had begun before the pandemic. And I think, you know, Annie didn't say necessarily in her introduction, but I, I think she's still the only director of experience in the NHS. Mm. And in some ways, um, Northumbria was fairly uniquely positioned here because this kind of work was building on so much and it's not just having the measurement tool which is really important because we we'll say an improvement it's very hard to improve what you can't measure there are some things that can't be measured and you shouldn't try you know it doesn't try to measure everything but being able to measure things is so important but what's really interesting for me listening to Annie exactly as you say you get this ability to identify details but then it's the cultural aspects of the organization on top of that the fact that there's a post like Annie's is such an important signal that patient experience staff experience is seen as integrated that the organization at a senior level wants to listen and that people therefore have the trust that if they put things and they take time to put things into surveys like this that it's going to be listened on it's going to be safe for them to do so and that leaders are going to have the ability to act on it as well, because um, uh, the other thing here is, in terms of resilience, is that ability to continuously listen and improve and adapt. And I think there's a major lesson there, not just for the organisational level, but for the NHS as a whole, in terms of the way that it engages, the way that it acts with staff, and the way that it prepares and builds in some resilience, because this has been a huge shock 
the pandemic, but it won't be the last. Um, and we were running this service really hot um, before the pandemic, you know, to very high up capacity levels. And what happens when you run things that hot is it gets harder and harder for people to engage in this kind of work and have time and space to do improvement work. And one of my anxieties as we look forward is um, how do we still keep space for this kind of innovation? How do we still keep the culture where we are listening, learning, given there's so much work to do looking forward and a workforce that's um, uh, certainly at least tired. Um, and that's yeah. the minimum word for it. Certainly. And uh, sort of just sticking with that, as you say, one of the big benefits we can have at the moment is that there's so many opportunities and so many ideas people have that the NHS can seize on that are short, quick wins. And he mentioned the idea of putting sinks outside of the hospital. It's such a simple change, but it has a massive impact, both practically in terms of infection control, but also just in something visual that says we are doing something. Um, and I suppose my initial question was going to be to you, Will, how do we sort of ensure that we keep momentum on that? But as you've mentioned, we just need to. It's part of that. But is it perhaps also having a consideration so that when trusts have ideas like putting in a um, experience role like um, Annie's, that they actually do it? Because we hear plans and ideas of these sort of roles quite often, but it is quite telling that Annie currently, as far as um, we're aware, represents the only one actually to have been acted on in the NHS. Yeah, no, there's, there's, there's a lot in there. I mean, there's been fantastic innovation um, throughout the service over the past year. Necessity is the mother of invention. Hmm. And um, the speed and the uh, range of the ways that the NHS has adapted to come up with new ways to deliver care, um, new ways to look after staff, new ways to get operational business done is phenomenally impressive. It really is. Um, we've just, um, and, 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 and the question that you then come to is how do you actually learn from that? How do we know what works and how do we spread things that are effective, yeah. which are really, really critical questions. We've just published this week a new um, piece of research where we surveyed 4,000 members of the public and 1,000 staff in the NHS about the use of technology during the pandemic. Um, so, you know, you'll be aware there's been a lot more in terms of remote consultations. There's more in terms of people using devices to monitor their health at home, um, even video consultation type work. So. The, the, the pertinent point from that is that it's been incredible the speed of innovation, but the job's not done yet. You've yeah. got to understand and evaluate that and understand who it works for and who it doesn't, and then build up the networks, build up the ways of sharing that knowledge and getting it spread through the NHS as fast as possible, because the scale of the challenge that's coming in terms of the unmet need, the backlog of care, unmet care from people not treated over the past year is, is, is really significant and probably not yet fully visible. Yeah, and as you mentioned there as well, part of the benefits we can do from this um, is that we want to build these networks to share the, the resource throughout. And obviously, Annie, from a lot of what Coronavirus is doing, it's sharing expertise within your NHS organisation. But is it also important in your mind that whatever you learn from your staff and from talking to it can also be shared to other trusts in your area and more widely than the NHS, where that strange being in the NHS that we're one organisation, that's also many organisations. So it's probably quite important we talk to one another, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. So sharing across other NHS and working within the NHS, I mean, I've 
worked for the NHS for 30 years, so <laughs> deeply passionate about what the NHS represents and all the people within it. Um, helping us improve um, from within um, and collaboratively with each other. Um, I, I mean, I'm hopeful about more opportunities to to do that as we go forward. And I've I've loved being part of um, successful collaborations across NHS organizations, many, and much of that work funded by the Health Foundation and supported by the Health Foundation. I think it links to um, Will's earlier point that um, it is really important to share the good ideas and the innovation, but those innovations won't land. <laughs> unless we do the, the really critical work to understand what those ideas mean to the places that are adopting those mm -hmm. ideas. And are the conditions for that adoption is the right level of support, is the right culture, is the right measurement framework, is the right, are the right leadership um, behaviors in place? Because all of those things make a difference. And we know that sometimes just having a good idea on its own and good people isn't enough. We've got to really crack not just innovation, but successful adoption if we want those ideas to really take hold and yeah. sustained. But um, it's a deep privilege um, as a clinician in the NHS to um, work with charities like the Health Foundation who invest heavily in in not just supporting the work, but helping us do the learning behind that work so that we can, um, you know, properly embed it. Yeah, and sort of part of that learning and that understanding is about, as to sort of go back to what we've talked throughout this, it's about adding all the voices in the room into the conversation rather than it being led by just one or two. And I know particularly with the coronavirus project that was put in obviously the health foundation were heavily involved there's also involvement from academia the uh, the open lab at newcastle university um sort of having that more academic and sort of traditional um not necessarily traditional but you know what i mean that very learned input um to just offer another different voice how important is stuff like that been um to just add that little bit extra to delivering in a project like this um, well, fantastic partnership. Carl Montague and his team, I'm just just brilliant people, geniuses as far as I'm concerned. And I mean, technology is not necessarily my strong point. So, you know, they were able to develop my learning, but um, we were able to say, look, these are ideas. This is what we need. Can you help us? Um, and they were in turn able to look at us and say, look, we've got just the solution, but we need a place to trial it in. We need a real world test bed. Yeah. So the partnership was, was really productive, but really, really creative, not just academics in their own right, but really creative individuals who, um, you know, we were privileged to partner with and uh, yeah, full credit to them. And then also their flexibility. So we, I went to them with no notice. It was the 6th of <laughs> April. And I said, look, we're going to need to do this on a different scale. And we need it by Monday, guys. And uh, they worked all weekend to help us through with that and, and stayed with us through all that. They deeply cared about supporting their local NHS um, organizations and um, helping us understand what it was that we needed. So yeah, no, a really proud partnership. Yeah, certainly. And I suppose to yourself, Will, as well, obviously the Health Foundation is very much a champion of all of these sort of health innovations, shall we call them. Um, 
But being able to start introducing such a broad range of other sort of people, and I think in the pandemic, more and more people have become aware that health is a community project and something we can tell. Has that been quite refreshing to see from your point of view as well, that there's a broad range of people who have skills and expertise who want to be involved and help? It's, it's, it's phenomenally important. I have the privilege of reviewing a large number of grant applications and both to do innovation and to try and scale up that innovation. And partnership is absolutely critical. And it sounds like a truism, but actually when you break it down, you get that sort of creativity and rigor from and ideas from academia. You need the real world testing um, uh, capacity that Annie's talking about that the NHS brings. When you're looking at scaling and spreading as well, and Annie's been involved in many of these, partners like charities are incredibly important for bringing in public voice and building momentum. Partners like Royal Colleges can be especially important in building professional credibility and expertise. And academia, as well as offering ideas, can offer that evaluation expertise as well. So um, it's almost, I mean, someone will find an example to correct me, but I can't recall actually the last major grant I gave that didn't involve this sort of partnership across sectors. You need to draw on that full range of capabilities if you're going to innovate and scale successfully. Yeah, certainly. I mean, certainly sounds like a task for your team to find that case study. (laughs) But um, (laughs) yes, Uh, no, it certainly does. And I suppose... um, my one sort of final point to yourself, Annie, would be for maybe those in other trusts who are maybe perhaps interested in sort of looking to these sort of um, processes, what would be your advice of yourselves um, and your trust who are keenly involved in setting this up? Um, what would be your, your advice for them to try and replicate or do similar in their own trusts? Well, to get in touch for a start, because uh, we're really keen to share um, the learning and and to discuss some of the things that we think really help. Some of that is around the context. You know, we were lucky to that we weren't jumping into listening to feedback from staff in the middle of a pandemic. They already were used to giving us feedback and the build up to that. So we do need to understand a little bit more about the conditions in which we were able to make this work with urgency in the context of a pandemic. But the the tools that we applied were um, quite simple in terms of measurement, and yet we found them to be quite effective um, and sensitive to the mood of the organization and track that through. Um, So the main message that I would give to other organizations is genuinely have a go. The benefits of that, we've seen meaningful changes uh, that have taken place possible within 12 months of implementation. Health and well-being of our staff in 2020, we've just had the latest national results, has not declined despite the pandemic. That's a phenomenal message of hope. I think for other organizations that investing in the well-being of your workforce pays dividends and um, it's just essential work going forward. So I'm optimistic. Um, I know that this work matters deeply to my own organization, but I'm optimistic that the importance of staff well-being is going to have been elevated, certainly by COVID, and uh, look forward to future partnerships and collaborations across the NHS about how we do this well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's such a powerful sort of message to have it on that 
this is something that has been incredibly important for as long as the NHS existed, the well-being of staff. But particularly in the last 12 months, we've seen the importance of it. And hopefully this is the start of a lot more involvement at every level for people to be able to have their voice in it. Um, I'm sure just as it's been fascinating for myself to listen to, I'm sure it's been fascinating for our listeners as well. And as Annie mentioned, any further questions, any learning you want to do, I'm sure both Annie and Will will be happy for you to reach out to them. Um, thank you so much from myself, um, Annie and Will, for taking the time today. It's been a delight to talk to you. Thanks for listening to this episode of NHE's Finger on the Post podcast. Join the conversation on social media or get in touch through the link on our website. To stay up to date with all the latest news and episodes, make sure to subscribe, drop us a rating on whatever streaming service you're using. This has been National Health Executive's Finger on the Post podcast. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next time.